Hi, welcome to Going Off Track. I'm Jonah, joined by Brad and Benny. What's happening? <laughs> Benny, what are you doing here today, man? What do you mean? Just in general? Mm. Benny was here recording a podcast with Jonah. Yes. Yeah. We decided to have him hang out and do some intros. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I mean, is it false, the fact that we're about to play an interview I had no part of? Nope. No? No, we do that all the time. So this is time. just cool. We're hanging out. We're introing. Yeah. Podcasts then, do that all the time, I feel like. They'll sometimes have people in the intros and not in the actual episode. It's called diversity. Yes. You know what's interesting? I've definitely listened to more... No, I'm sorry. I've definitely been on more podcasts than I've listened to. Interesting. Yeah. So I think, actually, I'm I'm a little lost on the formatting of of, of podcasts. Or it's how like, it normally goes. It's like you probably played more shows than you've been to as well, though. Definitely now. There you yeah, go. Yeah, for sure. But I guess intrinsically, I was at those shows. <laughs> All right, man. Yeah. <laughs> Blew <Whoa>. my mind. <laughs> uh, Benny, do you want to hear about today's podcast? Yes. Uh, <laughs> today we had on uh, Jessica Hopper, Ooh. Um, who is here talking about her book, which is called The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, which just came out. Um, and we had a guest host who was... Not you. Not you, was Brian Cook from Botch. Ooh. These Arms Are Snakes and Russian Circles. Yeah. That we were just r- talking about Botch on the way here. We were. I was just talking about how I traded my Ink and Dagger 7-inch for a very rare Botch We Are the Romans double LP. And how happy you were with that trade. Still am. I think, yeah, I think it's a yeah, good trade. Still am. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jessica is an editor of Pitchfork now. And I've known her forever and um, actually saw her when she was playing bass for Challenger. Oh, no shit. Which was a short-lived but awesome band. With Alberian. Alberian and Dave Laney from Mile Marker. Yeah. So then actually J-Tree just put all their stuff up on Bandcamp or something so you can actually listen to the Challenger record. Oh, no shit. And I think that Dave and maybe Al are in that band Oxes and they start doing stuff again too. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I love all those, all those bands. But um, yeah, Jessica came by to talk about the book. And we talked about a lot about how we were, me and Brian were listening to a lot of adult contemporary. We talk a lot about like Steve Winwood and uh, Bruce Hornsby. And it got pretty weird. Yeah. Like in the mechanics. <laughs> but hey. Were we, were you talking about these things in a positive way? Yes. As, sort positive. of in a, in a way like as we've gotten older, learning to appreciate this stuff. Maybe more specifically sure. me and Brian and Jessica being like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. And, uh, yeah, everyone should check out her book because it really, truly is the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. That's literal. That's literal. <laughs> and it's also... Literary and literal. Yeah, and it's on Amazon for $13.02. So That's pennies. Think about, <laughs> yeah, think about what you've is spent. Is that the Kindle edition or is that a paperback? That is the paperback edition. Hmm. Um, I don't know if there's a Kindle edition. Or maybe it's a hardcover edition. Maybe it's not out in paperback yet. Brad, do you do some do you do some hardcore Kindle work? I don't do Kindle. I can't really get with it. Mm. I still like a paperback. I like to fucking I like to look at my book when it's done and see that it's like beat up and I just you know, it's I can't do the Kindle. Yeah. We've somebody gave us a Kindle and I put something on it. A, fr- oh, a friend's book came out and I put it on there and then I just didn't read it. Yeah. So I said fuck it. Yeah. I back technology, as you know. I'm yeah, a big sure. geek, but uh, that's one place I just don't go with it. Yet. You're a book man. I'm sure I will at some point. Hmm. Maybe you're probably going to have to at some point. Maybe. When the, the robots are going to burn all the books. I don't know. Maybe they'll be, it'll be like vinyl. It'll be like a book resurgence back. coming out. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
They were like, it's easier to read. It's better this way. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, environmental, I guess it's better to do digital, though. But maybe they'll find out an environmental way to, to make books. Yeah, like maybe you could recycle them or something. You I don't probably know. could. Why don't they actually yeah, come they to They recycle think of it? books, man. I think books are recycled. The paper, it looks like it. Yeah, but I, I'm saying I've never seen like <laughs> like a Dropbox somewhere that's like, oh, recycle your books. <laughs> right, right. Never seen that. I did. I did just read a book recently that I ordered, like from Amazon or someplace used, and realized that like for the past like how many years I've been reading like you know like paperbacks now they come out in like the big it, you know they're bigger. And I got this old paperback, which is like the little, like, you know, it's like a little, like, it's like four inches across, which is like what paperbacks used to always be that size. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a pain in the butt to read it because it's so small that you, like, can't hold it open. Yeah, those are like the choose your own adventures. <laughs> right. Yeah, but that's like what paperbacks used to be totally. that size. I didn't, I didn't think about how spoiled we've been. Yeah. But they're actually called something else, too. So small that you couldn't flatten it out on a yeah, table because yeah, yeah. it would just yeah, pop yeah, back yeah. up. That's why you like, needed a bookmark then. You know, yeah. it doesn't look like that. The Pitchfork Review. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It looks, well done. It's it's big. It's hardcover. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. It's so a beautiful. It's a beautiful. Book. It is really well put together. So check out Pitchfork Review. Jessica's an editor there. And some of them, the early ones came with uh, rubber tracks singles. You know that? I didn't know that. Yes, the first three definitely had forty fives that were cut. Uh, there were rubber tracks bands. Were they the um, the plexis? They used to be in like. No, no. <laughs> I wish because those are awesome. <laughs> it's I, nice vinyl mastered by Andy Vendette. Wow. There's a good plug. So, yeah, so check out Pitchfork Review, check out Jessica's book, check out all Brian's bands, and here is Jessica and Brian on Going Off Track. It's going off track! And we got all these amazing pictures of the B-52s from, like, 1980, including Kate Pearson at her hairdresser, getting her, like, bouffant did up, and it's, like... I would buy the magazine just for that picture and put it in a frame. That's amazing. It's a real commitment. She's like, both her and Fred are kind of like slight comeback trail. I was at that SNL 40 party and they came out and did like Love Shack and something else. Like, it's pretty cool. They still tour. Yeah, they sound good. I mean, they're more like Casino Circuit. Yeah. They're weird because, you know, like... Casino Circuit... No, really. They play they play horseshoe. When they play Chicago, they play horseshoe. And they play like the big gay street festival and they play a casino in Hammond. And then they play, they encore with Love Shack and balloons drop from the ceiling. I know because all my friends go. Apparently they're still great. Like I can't hear an isolated drum beat. Like anytime there's like a drum break, it immediately makes me think of love shack in my head it can be any like <laughs> anything within that like beat per minute range it's just love shack like, and like uh, the amen break and that's it yeah i can't you know uh i'm doing the thing so we talked to um we talked to bradford cox and he said that like every drum sample he's ever used is just from the first b52s album yeah that's because he's like it is this is absolutely the most perfect piece of art ever. it's a it's a yeah, thinking about what that band was at that point in time and where is like, like it makes that record seem way creepier. Like, I think that first record it's is insane like, and it, like and really unsettling. Yeah, <laughs> and also the other thing too is that it was like, you think about it now, and as artful as they were because they were campy, people didn't put them into that same sort of like genius category as Talking Heads, and that's one of the points in the piece but mm-hmm. that people because they basically went on to be like 
a band that's very famous for having like the most popular karaoke songs of all time. It takes, it sort of removes them from the world of serious artistry. But you really can't fuck with those records. And even when you go back to Love Shack, which, um, you know, like, it's so weird to think <laughs> that, like, that was, that was like a top 40. That is such yeah. a weird song. It was like a huge hit. But Cosmic Thing is like actually a pretty weird record. And I'm, I know it very well because I used to listen to it when I delivered papers in eighth grade. I thought, every, every I, thought, I thought you were listening to Dinosaur Jr. then. That was just a tiny bit later. It was okay. ninth grade. <laughs> but eighth grade for me was um, Nana Cherry, uh, B-52's Cosmic Thing, and Delight and Tracy Chapman. Just quite an education. <laughs> wow. I know, and look at me now. <laughs> like, where those tapes, the taste that that got me. <laughs> I um, think like, Cosmic Thing was like a like one of those weird... That was like the same era of like... R.E.M.'s Green and like mm-hmm. Camper Van Beethoven's Key Lime Pie and that was like Naomi Giant's Flood. That was all like that weird point in time where I was like, oh, there's like, to my mind, this is like the weirdest music. Yeah. And that was kind of like... And it was popular. Yeah. I mean, relatively speaking. Yeah. You know, but that it was um, the the idea that music that weird could be mainstream was really like, and I also remember right around that time was replacements all shook down and there was kind of these little entreaties of, you know, quote unquote, college rock and, you know, Jane's addiction and whatever, just sort of like, sort of encroaching into your like, oh, I mean, aside from like whatever we can get in this like whole 120 minutes, you yeah, know, like, remember and- when, but it was like, there was like 12 bands that were like sort of our envoy out of the underground into the mainstream. And all those records are so fucking weird. When you listen back to them, you're like. How did anybody let this person make this record and be like, yes, I hear hits? Do you think it's because there were just less bands? Yeah, but I think there was also, you know, it's things like people who kind of came out of like 80s college rock and went to major labels. You know, people like that. There's some of that. But also that there was just more of like kind of like a structure. And I think people were also, I mean, everything from people reacting to like the sort of backlash of like plastic music in the 80s, but then also kind of that... Um, you know that like things like you too had kind of broken out of like you know not necessarily underground music but things that were sort of like popular with like college radio and people in college and here were these things that were sort of like people were like oh no we should definitely get something from that world you know because the last time that had sort of really happened was you know uh, maybe not like all at once but like New York punk and early new wave and stuff like that you know people may- being able to make major labels records then i don't know yeah no that makes i don't sense. have the facts i don't have the data <laughs> this is strictly wild theory pure conjecture yes uh so we're here with jessica hopper and brian cook hello thanks for coming guys thanks for having me of course it's been a, it's been a while it's, it's been like i haven't seen you since you were like three or four years old yeah <laughs> and you were running that magazine oh yeah back in the day back in the day uh, and I haven't seen you since you were what, fifty or sixty years old. Yeah, still my the twilight of. My and life. when you were playing in Pearl Jam. Yeah, those are the days. Uh, me and Brian were talking about how we both saw you play with Challenger. It's true. I've played the bass before. Yes, not super well, but 
that was like a period of time where I was actually an okay bass player. Yeah, it's not I good. took I took bass lessons. Oh yeah, against my like better punk ethos, but I really um at the time I was roommates with Al Burian and I worked with the dudes and Challenger as their publicist and like they couldn't find a bassist and I fully needled my way into that scenario. I was like, I got nothing broom for three weeks, and I just was like, oh my god, I haven't played music in any sort of real sense in I don't know five years. And I was like, so I just took bass lessons for like three weeks. I do remember you stayed at my house and my upstairs neighbors were super loud and your drummer like went upstairs and like, I can't remember who, who was that Ben Davis or something? No, that no, was Ramis, right? no, no, no. The, both those people were out. It, it was someone kind of um, scary looking. No, it was Noah and it Noah, was Noah. Yeah. And so, um, Noah who now plays and disappears. Okay. But he was, he was, um, you know, he was like in hurl and stuff. He was like tough yeah it dude was, from oh pittsburgh pittsburgh yes it was down. awesome he yelled at them and like they were never loud again they were so freaked oh out oh my god you must have been stuck yeah no he could be totally intimidating <laughs> yeah it was great it was great so what do you look for in a drummer keeping time and being scary it's true isn't he in blue man group now or is that um, he that was he's like been like about? a blue man group tech for a long time okay Dude, we're already like off in the weeds of uh, ex members, <laughs> hardcore 90s discography. Um, Stick around. We're going to talk about Vomit Launch next <laughs> and just dig in. And you work at Pitchfork now? It's true. Isn't that weird? That is weird. I mean, I have a job. That's weird to me. It's great. I still, I still can't get used to it. I've never worked in an office before. And so I'm, all, I'm still remarking like a dum dum about, I was like, so. How, like getting the hang of it like just like how was your weekend <laughs> oh cool like I, i'm just learning you know there's all these things that culturally never made sense to me like people coming home from work and just like getting drunk and watching tv and now i super understand that i don't do those i don't do either of those things but i understand the cultural phenomena of like you come home from work and you're like fuck i've been around people all day yeah i, I think- just need my comfort i need like my slanket and I need some booze or like whatever. See, I feel I feel bad because my husband has a you know a normal nine to five job, and he comes home. And it's just like I've been around people all day. I'm sick of people. I hate people, and I've been by myself all day. So I'm like, do you want to hang hey, out? Hey, what's that? Oh my god! Guess Tell what you did today? Day. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I, I feel that way, but I always feel like I wish I had a more social job. Like I wish I had an office, but I feel like as soon as I did it, I would be like, I need to be alone. I want. I've I've requested a cubicle. Nice. Because I'm I'm like. People walk by me, like, say something, or, hey, what's up, or, like, what a friend. I'm literally like, I'm editing! <laughs> oh! Like, just <laughs> don't talk to me, because I'm used to working on my couch. And if anyone's around, it's a cat. And maybe every once in a while, like, my husband or a child or something like that. But I'm used to that, um, being in the cloister of one's own, own thoughts. Well, I envision all these, like, major press outlets just being, like, huge banquet tables of people on their laptops. So there's no... That's what Vice is like, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I don't know what Pitchfork's like. AP wasn't really... I had my own office at AP. What? Uh, well, yeah, it was Cleveland. Because he was baller. Yeah. <laughs> baller. He had like a door and everything. I had a door, yeah. Um, I don't door. even have a cubicle. It's an open office plan, but I work with such wonderful people. And um, I have a lot of freedom to do cool stuff and work with all these young writers that I like. So I have a job. I work at Pitchfork. <laughs> and that's that. And you also have a new book coming out. I have a new book coming out in May. It's called The Dog's Guide to Cheese 101. 
Oh, it is a. It is different than my last book. It is not for teenagers. I mean, teenagers can read it if they want, but this is. Uh, it, it is called the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic, and it is a basically a collection of my essays and criticism called from basically the last fifteen years. Getting past the last fifteen years is like getting into embarrassing Xeroxine <laughs> territory. That is best left in my garage and not brought into the world. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. That's a true, that's like a true statement. Um, like is the title facetious? Yeah. Um, the title, it's funny. It's sort of like the joke title became the real title. Uh, Tim Kinsella, as some of our listeners might remember him from a band called cap and jazz. Or Joan of Arc. Or Mike's been on the podcast. Or Owls. Yeah. Or as being, you know, the older brother of Mike Kinsella, which is probably his biggest claim to fame, honestly. <laughs> but that um, he inherited Featherproof Press, which is like a fairly fairly reputable uh, book publisher in Chicago. Um, and he inherited it from, from some other friends of ours and was like, hey, do you want to do a book? And I was like, yes, actually I have a book that a lot of people told me basically is not possible. Because you have to be canonical and you have to be dead and you have to be um, like a rock critic from the 70s. You have to be a 50-year-old man. You have to be whatever. Um, because in publishing, there's sort of an idea that there has to be precedent before anyone will greenlight a book about it. And you would think that like, a, like I don't know, the existence of Rob Sheffield's you know, wonderful and successful books of music criticism or Chuck Klosterman being like, you know his books being Bibles for people of a certain age, that that would like count towards the precedent and that I wouldn't have to be like a dude for it to count. You know what I mean? Right. So there's kind of a few things, but also um, it was sort of like the joke name because in sort of a certain sort of, if you start to parse it in a technical sense, yes, it is true. Like a collection of criticism, of rock criticism, of stuff that is purely criticism and not like also you know, um, things that don't fall under that, like, uh, you know, interviews and things like that. And, um, excuse me. Um, now it's getting gross. You can just edit that out unless you want to actually like turn it. You can also turn that all the way up for a minute. It's gross. Dear engineer, where was I? And the other thing too is that, um, because of, you know, since, since literally like the 1700s, how we've uh, covered female artists and things like that, uh, you know, female musicians, composers, whatever. There's always this idea that every woman is somehow kind of like the first at what she's doing, in part because how we so traditionally record women as being outsiders in music um, in every way that they're involved in it, like that we're still getting things that are like this pioneering female engineer. It's like, no, there's been female, there's been female engineers since like the 50s people you know do your homework <laughs> um but because in some ways we're not accorded a kind of history and uh it's always seemed like we're sort of like making making an, an incursion into the boys club and that certainly feels like it like still all the time for a lot of us but um it's a sense of going you know Okay, we're the first. So everything comes that comes after this is the second. Like the title, there's an introduction in the book now about the title that says, you know, there's other books that could 
you know, in certain senses, be this, you know, Lillian Roxon's uh, Rock Encyclopedia, which is from 68, 69, amazing book. And, you know, uh, there's a couple other other things, you know, Ellen Willis had like a collection that had some criticism in it. And then like, but she was, you know, a collection of uh, all of her, her music criticism was posthumous and, you know, whatever. And you can name like four or five other books that kind of qualify but you know some people basically don't know that those things exist and so this is literally like the title is literally like you know very dramatically planting a flag and going okay (laughs) you can't say that this has no precedent anymore and and not to be like all like you know feminist you know banner waving pat on the back myself but it's like okay doors open now everybody we can come in you know Stop pretending like, you know, we don't have the right to be here because people haven't given us permission still. So that's sort of what that's about. Gotcha. So is this is all post kind of hit it or quit it? Or is it? There's a couple. There's there? a, so I, um, readers, if you guys are not like balls deep in like 90s emo <laughs> scene, I mean, who, who, who wasn't, right? Right. Yeah. I just right. think everyone it's, knows what this stuff right. is. Okay. If you're like 40 and you cared about hardcore 20 years ago, <laughs> I had a zine called Hit It or Quit It that evolved out of, um, you know, my sort of uh, uh, ninth grade bedroom, you know, nascent riot girl aspirations in Minneapolis in the 90s. And I did a fanzine that eventually kind of became more or less a magazine uh, for like 13, 14 years, so periodically, and called Hit It or Quit It. And um, yeah, there's some stuff from from that but at that I didn't really know how to write until I was like 28 and I started that fanzine when I was 15 and when I started to kind of dig through it very tacitly like pulling boxes out of my garage I literally was like would just get the willies with shame <laughs> and I got I got a, a helpful intern this um was like an MFA student who was helping out at Featherproof and I was like can you just sort of read through these for me and if something's good just put like a little dog ear or a piece of tape or something for me and just tell me what's good in here because I have to stop after like four pages and it's not even a matter of ego it, you know because I would be like filled with like a wave of like oh my god I can't write this book's gonna be four pages long and um it's literally gonna be like a double-sided pamphlet and uh or it, you know, or just being like, oh my God, I'm so happy this is pre-internet and that somebody can't like Google this and pull this up, you know? It wasn't ego. It was literally just like, I had no filter. I was a teenager. I was telling people all sorts of personal beeswax. I had horrible taste in music for like a good long while, you know? Just like that. Like, it's like, no, this doesn't need to be in a book. No one ever needs to read this again. Um, but anyway, so that was, there are, are some things starting from like my late twenties where I was doing enough freelance writing and had enough editorial insight, or at least had friends like Al Burian or my friend JR, um, or Julian Escobedo Shepard, people where I could show them pieces and they could give me quality critical feedback and it stopped being like, you know, I mean, like I looked at some of the reviews from Hitter to Quit and I was like, Oh, I called the people in Jejun retarded. Like, <laughs> stuff we don't do anymore. Right. Where it's just like, yeah, I don't know. You just shut that door and just go, and let's just let the past be the past. And let the, and so it's basically like the earliest stuff in there is like, I want to say like 97, 99. 
okay. right around there. So like, it's sort of like my mature work. <laughs> it's a collection of my most mature and immature work. I always, the, I always get nervous with, with criticism. Like, you know, you should be. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about write about bands, but I always feel nervous assigning like an actual, I don't know, assessment of the pros and cons of music because I feel like most music is just a matter of perception and how you absorb well, it's subjective. it. And yeah, and so you know, there's some Brian Eno, or no, it wasn't Brian. It was John Peel who talked about like when he would get submissions for his radio show, if he didn't like it. He would just assume that he didn't understand it and hadn't come to the point of like being able to see where their perspective, where they were coming from. I'm not that generous. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there is <laughs> very noble. Of, there's definitely bad, straight up bad music out there. But I know there's so many bands that I used to just talk so much shit about, and then two years down the line, I was like, oh, I actually, I really love Built to Spill. I had no idea. I thought they were just like a bad hippie jam band. But what? what is the band that you've like done like a complete 180 on that Ooh. maybe even surprised you this question goes out to the both of you um this is my podcast now oh my god <laughs> i'm trying to think i can go first please like open up the room yes in the spirit of open dialogue um i actually just tweeted about this the other day was erica badu uh is a Return, return to the onk, return, return of the onk. I don't know what the middle word is, um, but at the time I was like, "Oh, this is," you know, it's like it was kind of on the heels of New America, which is like so like deep and political and funky and just like a very juicy, sensual, sharp album. And then it, she followed it up with this thing that's sort of vampy and sometimes morose and very sort of like really vulnerable, but in a way that I felt didn't quite fit my personal feminist prerogative and like whatever that was 2011 where I'm like I don't want vulnerability I want polemics and strength and I was like this album is just so dour and it sucks you in and it's like we are like in the bottom of this horrible depression with Erica Bedu and I gave it like a fairly scathing review and I put it on the other day I was like god this record's good and so I tweeted an apology to the world. <laughs> if anyone else has written that record off, go back. It is top notch. Yeah. Yes. Put it, played it, played it uh, back to back with Maxwell Black Knight. It's like perfect little grown people R and B cocktail. All right, you go. I'm, I'm still trying to think. I feel like I backtrack on things all the time. I, I feel like I'm just so prone to knee jerk reactions when I hear something where if it doesn't fit the paradigm well, also the criteria that we had for music when we were younger i think there's probably you know when you're when you're going to like hardcore matinees and yeah. you know there's certain there's just all these things that factor into our reception and perception of music when we're younger too all the hoops we make it jump through to reach us you know whether that's like ethically or emotionally or whatnot you know like when i was i don't know younger i can't imagine i would like have as nearly as deep an appreciation of say bob seeger's craftsmanship and like own up to it as i did then because it was just like i'm punk and that american factory bullshit beer drinking like right four by four driving i don't know what you know that you have all these judgments of who who's allowed to listen to what music because you're in that cloister of punk and hardcore 
you know? No, totally. I feel, and I fucking love Seeger, man. I, so I've Bob, about, I'm with you. I'm with you, Bob. I, I still love that there's the Bob Seeger cover band called Total BS. <laughs> it's like, I'm just glad it exists yes. merely for the premise of the band name. I, I feel like mine are all guys like, like, like Bruce Hornsby or like Phil Collins or like that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I generally love Steve Winwood. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, where has this conversation gone? I, I know. Guys, I, what's next? Are you going to be like, Dire Straits is my jam? Uh, no. <laughs> dire Straits is... Uh, That's like, Straits, a bridge I can, like a bridge I cannot cross. <laughs> there was this crucial summer in my life where everything I loved in classic rock or hated flipped. Whereas like I used to love Dire Straits and the Eagles... And then it just flipped in all of a sudden. It's like, I can't deal with any of that anymore. And now it's... Um, I'm going to tell you guys something I've never told anybody before, except for maybe like one or two of my close personal friends. And this is going to seem like um, some weird humble brag, but it's actually like a totally embarrassing story. So I went to, uh, as we were talking about earlier, I went around like Halloween time to go interview Bjork in London. And as we're at the tail end of the interview, we were talking about how uh, DJ Total Freedom was playing that night. And she's like, I'm going, it's gonna be like a three o'clock in the morning rave. And he's an old, actually an old assistant of mine years ago. And, um, and I was like, oh my God, I would love to go. And it's just like getting later and later. And I was like, I'm already totally jet lagged. I was laying in like my bed at the hotel at, you know, whatever, like midnight, still like kind of a reasonable hour watching the part one of the Eagles documentary, the HBO one, I get this, you know, message like, do you want to go to this like Halloween rave with Bjork? And I opted to stay <laughs> in bed and watch an Eagles documentary instead of like going and partying with Bjork. Like, like you can just cross me off the I'm like officially lame. I had a moment this week where I was like, I want to listen to the end of the innocence. Do I want to listen to, uh, the Don Henley version or the Bruce Hornsby version? <laughs> and then I was like, I should probably just like listen to neither. <laughs> or just make like a, like a playlist on your Spotify or Sonos or whatever and just like, just ABM, just back and forth. <laughs> and then put like the new Ryan Adams record right next to it and be like, just the whole genesis. <laughs> that sound. Yeah, that's true. Um, so what's up, guys? I don't know. I'm still, I'm still puzzling on this. Like 180. I of. used to love Built to Spill, and now I just, I just hear there's some things that I liked that were very indie rock back in the day. And because I think I liked that sort of like the pleasure of like, you know, inherent in late 90s, you know, like pavement and Built to Spill and stuff like that. And now I feel like it's too cute. I can see that. I feel, I feel like I had a lot of disdain for that sector when my hardcore days, and now it's like I'm finally. Like, oh, I, I see the merit in it. You're like dancing around your house to like Tiger Trap and being like, I love this. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Like another, like reggae. I used to hate reggae. I grew up in Hawaii and I despised reggae. I thought it was like, Um I think once you go past 35, there's kind of two routes that you go, which is that you stop listening to anything but garage rock. <laughs> Historical, contemporaneous. Like I, I, I knew somebody who was like, I'm just into French garage rock. And I was like, Ugh. but <laughs> you know, go there with that um or you get really you like it is a thing where punks that it's like a very real transformation <clears throat> of you hit 35 to 38 as a punk you sell all your records and you get like really into like big youth and you just get super into reggae 
and you go there. <laughs> it is a thing that happens. It happened to me. It happened to me a little early. I was like 31, 32. So it's garage rock or reggae? Yeah. Okay. I, I think it's rarely both. You're like a freak of nature if it's both. I'm, see, I feel like I'm just going adult contemporary. Um, <laughs> Full-blown yacht. Yeah. I don't know what that says about me. You know, I think I think that's fair. You know, I think, and it's not. Is it? And it's. Did it? Did it come about as like? Is it like ironic reclamation, or is it? I mean, I think there's a very natural thing to like. Once you're in your thirties, all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I loved. My dad had this tape. I, I listened yeah, to this. Like, yeah. you know, that's very like appreciating the music of your childhood. I interviewed uh, back for Story in GQ last year, and he was talking about coming back to all of that sort of like, you know. Um, I don't think he said quite like James Taylor, but you know, that kind of like Californian dad rock. Right. You know, cause like I listen to that record and I think like thematically this is basically Jackson Brown, the pretender, you know, though it's much more expansive, but like, you know, he talked about like all the stuff that he thought he was, that was so corny when he was a kid growing up in California, the really iconic Californian sound going back to him being like, Oh no, this is the shit. They were getting it right. I, I think that's natural. I yeah. think that's natural. We hear, you know, I remember reading interviews like the Mars Volta and they're like, oh yeah, like we grew up in a household. We only listened to like salsa music, you know, and I'm like, that sounds so awesome and inspiring. Like you would have such a unique worldview and like, obviously like you would come up with something way different than what I would come up with in a household that listened to ABBA and Neil Diamond, you know, but now- Diamond's I've, tight, man, though. No, I've come to ab- completely embrace ABBA and Neil Diamond. I think they're both like amazing- songwriters like songwriting's genius and obviously they knew how to write hits and the production is really interesting and i mean do you think do you think do you guys think that this is entirely like uh that evolution is natural with age because i feel like some people i know like we're talking about like just going to reggae or just going to garage rock it's sort of like a winnowing a way to just like the one thing you care about rather than you know still being like an omnivore about music but do you think it's like a function of just how different, uh, how broad our capacities are to like, absorb music from every which way and, and hear about new music is so different than it even was, you know, 12, 15 years ago when we were all four. <laughs> and, you know, like when we're talking about like, you know, from from that peak era for all of us being involved in like punk and hardcore And really that being like the focus of your life. You know, I think in some ways that's like, that sort of thing is is never fully, it can't sustain you forever, particularly if you're like in a scene with like a lot of politics and, you know, rules about stuff. You just get older and you're like, the world is bigger than the fireside wall. Yeah. Um, Or, but like for you, what does it feel like a function of like getting into literally like Bruce Hornsby and being like... I feel this. I think it feels part. This is my music. <laughs> partially that, and I think it's also like feeling like displaced a little bit, like in the punk scene, sort of when you hit the, sort of mm-hmm. like your mid thirties, mm-hmm. like having like worked on the Warp tour and done all that stuff, and then you see it. I'm like, I don't know who any of these bands are. I don't get it. Like, like I like a band like Title Fight. Like I like their music, but I feel like it's like a totally different. It's like a different. It's like or a, a general, totally same thing. Or totally same. Yeah, that a lot too. When people are like, this is so crazy. And like, no, this sounds like this band 10 years ago. You know what I always try to keep in mind when I think that? I had um, I had a boyfriend who's a little older than me when I was like 19, 20. And I just started working. <clears throat> I had just started working with the Promise Ring. 
for uh, Nothing Feels Good. And I played it and I was like, this is like totally obsessing me. And he's like, this kind of sounds like the Minutemen. And I was like, uh, no, it doesn't. And like, this is my generation's like, well, you know, just getting like all kind of like snappy and defending it. And I think about it now, like, what is, what is like the, you know, whether, I don't know, things where I'm like, oh, I like this, but like people of my generation did it, you know. I don't know, like better, but like something like maybe like Waxahachie where it's like, oh, I appreciate this, but like this reminds me of this, like, you know, like, I don't know, the softies or like something, you know, where I'm like some old Kill Rock Stars band that was meaningful to me that I liked better the first time, you know, but it's like, what is, what is the point I'm missing on this? And I sort of, like we were saying before, just certain things where I'm like, I'm, this is just not for me anymore because I'm. Oh, well, I feel like, you know, the music that like, you know, really put us where we're at today, whether it was like punk or hardcore or whatever, but like, or botch, <sighs> we're all thinking it, but you yeah, know, like that, but like <laughs> that, you know, that kind of music to me was so appealing because it was made in a different context than what you saw on television or heard on most of the radio. You know, it's like, this isn't like, you know, we were getting like literally mainstream music at the time i think people particularly now they go oh the 90s was grunge and it was nirvana and hole and like whatever and you're like yeah but mostly it was like fred durst's omnipresence yeah and like i lived in southern california and there was like a lot of like lag wagon and sublime going on at all times yeah you know which was all that stuff was so macho to me you know i really was like drawn to hardcore that was like sensitive <laughs> you know that would contextually but i interrupted you go ahead uh, but you know i just think that you know then it becomes a, an issue of all those bands that you become obsessed with represent a certain kind of artistic purity and everything that you see on the radio is the opposite of that and it's somehow manufactured and corrupt and it's made for an audience and it's like made by a formula and blah 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 blah, blah. and so you sort of cast up everything else and then i know for me it's like as time goes on, then you see other punk and hardcore bands that start falling into those traps of like, well, it's manufactured for an audience. It's made, mm-hmm. you know, according to a formula. It's not really political or about like bands. like. Or if they say it's political, it's just like some like what would qualify as it. it like yeah. you're like, this is not this is not a real chance. Like you're like, fuck the war. And it's like, no, like literally like you're not truly political until you are playing a rock against Reagan benefit, okay? <laughs> um, no, but that, you know, I think all, uh, there's some of those things that just, um, I accept that there, I'm sure there's some really wonderful political stuff that I don't know about sometimes, but that also I just think people generally are less likely to be, I don't want to say political in like a new way, but like um, being out, outspoken even a little now is like, being political, having something to say because we've had this long streak of like resistance to meaning and like bands going like, my music's just for the interpretation of the listener, which I appreciate. But I also really like bands that are like, no, this is yeah some full on like craft style. Like we are running an intervention on your political mind, you know, like something that's really um, challenging for people who are already politically engaged or thinking about you know, identity politics or the state of, you know, 
ecological trans feminism or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's actually going to challenge that and not be like just something that kind of like underscores it. Do you know what I mean? Like makes you think anything bigger or, or is approaching with like a bigger idea about those things. Yeah, I, I think I think that's there, rare. Yeah, I think maybe there was like a brick wall that hit like at nine eleven or something where people all of a sudden were just like, you know what, we're tired of being earnest and political. I think that's very much a thing. And I think that's why we got people who are like really interested in like, um, you know, I think that's part of the reason that disco, mm-hmm. punk disco got really big. Totally. And I also think that actually led to the popularity of black metal in a really serious way because Mm. people were interested in sort of, um, we were in such a place, I think post 9-11 of being like, nothing matters, music just for pleasure, um, music with no meaning, you know, you couldn't take it really. Um, and then the war and all these things. And then it was like being interested in music that was like transgressive and, would otherwise kind of maybe like a decade before people would have been offended by it yeah, and offended by the whatever like the the morals of the people making yeah. it or, or what they're getting yes yeah. and 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 all of that stuff and called bullshit on it rather than embraced it um because of sort of the i don't want to say like the moral tenor of you know the american underground at the time but just like Wanting something that was like, I don't know, meant something, but didn't, you know, that we could look at it and like that spectacle and that like nothing's shocking. And it's so nothing's shocking that, you know, I'm not put off by Varg. Yeah. Or, you know, whoever. And you're like, well, I mean, he is like a Nazi, right? Like we should, we should be offended by this, even though this music is beautiful, whatever. Let's not get into like... (laughs) The black metal waters. We're already at 35 minutes of this podcast. But, you know, I think there was a lot of that, I think. And I think part of that was also, you know, the the huge rise of, like, you know, PC hardcore and East Bay stuff that was um, somewhat political and even Fugazi and DC and, and, like, really giving a shit. And then people were like, I am tired of punk with rules. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of things led up to that, like, people being like, I'm not going to impose my thoughts or ideologies and this is purely how you receive it and this swastika is actually just for decoration. (laughs) And if you want to put meaning on it, I mean, that's not our meaning. You know, thinking that you can completely remove things from context and history. Um, Which, you know, I never had a lot of interest in that. Well, yeah, it it seemed like it should have been, you know, the entire Bush administration, I remember people being like, well, it's going to be a great era for punk rock. And it's like, it really kind of wasn't. Like, people were We got really- Bright Eyes, though. We had that, like, that one Bright Eyes song that everyone was like, oh my God, he's so speaking out. He's like a young Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I re listened to that recently. I was like, wow, like, this is, yeah, this is really what passed for political and sort of like more mainstream independent rock or whatever. You know, but then also you look at look back at some some stuff that happened then, like you know, Dave Bazan and some of the like complex things that he was getting at about you know at the time like uh, the religious right and the the moral tenor of the country and kind of putting in these weird parables about faith. Um, that I look back at that now and think that was kind of the real 
political music of that era. But it was much more subtle and people, a lot of people were like, oh, she's Christian, fuck that. I don't listen to that tooth and nail shit. I, I always said I love David Bazan because I felt like I he was like more anti-church than Crass was, even though he was like a Christian, you know, it was like yes. a spiritual dude that hated Shout out to David Bazan, man. And plus he's still like, he is still going and he's like, okay, my audience has changed and who wants to hear this? And like, I want to have more intimate experiences with my audience than like a lot of these venues might allow. And that he goes to people's houses and there's like Q&A and he's like, you know, kids at his feet, like crying and being like, you know, he's little. I, I wrote a piece about him years ago where I was writing about like, even though he's, you know, agnostic now that he still plays Christian festivals because, you know, rather than the, sort of like flipping the paradigm of like, you might be the only Christian they ever meet. He might be the only agnostic that's allowed within like a thousand foot radius of these kids that are only allowed to listen to praise music. You know, that's subversive as fuck. Yeah, totally. You know? Every, every time I go to one of his house shows, I'm like, this is like what everyone's going to be doing in like five or ten yes, years. It's yes. totally like he's And like Buckner ahead. has started doing it. And people who's their fan base is, you know, like... They just have kind of still, in some ways, some of those people, and particularly, you know, for, you know, people who are real, you know, crafts people, and can they can be there with a guitar and it's and a chair in your house, and it's going to be a better experience than you see at any concert all year. You know, him and Richard Buckner are two of my favorite songwriters, and and um, you know, like. There's amid like the festivalization of music that people can make a living playing houses and 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 have something that isn't like this kind of like faux like personal transaction in the form of a tweet where I'm like cultivating my fan base through this sort of like I don't want to say like hammy interaction but what we come to think of like you know because we do want these personal connections with the artists that we love and a tweet or like a, you know facebook like or whatever gives us a sort of like <laughs> audience <laughs> brian is shaking his head I, in disdain I, I was i was thinking about that this morning because like, i just never bother checking any of my band's social media inboxes Don't. all the comments are terrible ever ever <laughs> i do all the time and people hate your band i just yeah. i'm letting you <laughs> yeah but it makes you feel bad because that's I, a joke you know i have like that postcards from Jello Biafra and Ian Mackay, where they like took the time out to like respond to my yes. fourteen year old like juvenile questions. Oh and, yeah, and part uh, of uh, just you like, were you were not you were not like a, a punk of the nineties unless you wrote Discord with like some like dumb personal letter. Yeah, that they answered. They answered every letter. That was their rule. Yeah, and so part of me is just like I wish we could go back to that, but I don't. There's not even like a band address you could. Like who has a band address? Okay. That used to be obligatory on every release, yeah, and true. no one has oh, that yeah. anymore. Oh yeah, I want to go back to that because I want. I, I'd like to be able to like. It slows the world down too. Yeah, a little. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's important. I'm going to do it. Do it. Okay. Gonna... Okay. Why don't we challenge the listeners of this fair podcast? Everybody, you have six months to identify a band that is meaningful to you, contemporary band, and write them. At the very least, a detailed postcard. I'm and put it. it in the mail. Or worst case scenario, go to their show and give it to them. If you can't find a stamp, those things happen at the post office. Who, okay, now that we're now that you guys are on my podcast, mm -hmm. who would you write to? 
What, and what would the letter be about? It would have to be somebody who's like sort of-ish, contemporary-ish. What's weird, I feel like a lot of the bands I wrote when I was a teenager are still, like I wrote like Bouncing Souls, like Propagandi. I think those bands are still active. So would you go back? When you send a letter to Propagandi right now? I don't now? know what I would say to like, Propagandi. It's been a while. Than. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I feel like I would want to gravitate towards another punk or hardcore band or, you know, someone that's in the underground. You, you wouldn't know. write a letter to Beyonce? No. Maybe Nicki Minaj. But even then, Nicki Minaj. Letter, what letter would you send Nicki Minaj? Dear Nicki Minaj, you are cool. Basically, yeah. What else <laughs> just a postcard for you then. Like, quit writing pop songs and just write. Rap. Yeah, just, just do your rap. raunchy, minimalist bangers because that's, that's why I pay attention. <laughs> I want Stupid Ho, not Starships, you know? Like, come on. With you, with you. Co-sign that. I will also put my name on that postcard to Nicki. Yeah. So you would write a letter to Propagandi. <laughs> you and I are going to like, are going to write a fucking tweet on a postcard to Nicki Minaj. I mean, who would you, who, who would you write like a, for, okay, let's say, you know, editorially speaking, 600 words, full arc, personal relationship. This is what your band means to me. But also like the kind of letter that we probably all sent Jawbox at one point, right? <laughs> I saw you and I felt like this. And it was like this. I brought my friend. We drove three hours to your show. Who even could you send that letter to now? Brian Cook. This is, this is again, this is like <laughs> another tricky thing because I feel like I would wind up running into them later and then being like... Yeah, sorry I sent you that letter. That, that's that's kind of weird. But that right? means then you still have your teenage soul in you. Yeah. If you're like kind of embarrassed, like, I'm sorry I'm emailing you, but I just, I just, my feelings. Um, Who would it be? Oh, man. You have 10 seconds. You know what? I would, I would write a letter to the band Constantine's because... They're still a band? Well, they, they have reunited. But they were like the band of the okay, last... Okay, name a band that hasn't reunited. <laughs> reunited oh i have to like pick your a band fresh count. band oh but your band has but then you didn't wait what didn't like a while ago no did you has your band stayed completely dormant since you broke up yes oh kudos to you i know kudos very to you few you left i know man there's forces conspiring to make that happen okay but. so what would you tell the constantines <laughs> i'd say to put out another record that i thought they're the most vital rock band of the odd years and From Canada or just like in general? I would say in general. Wow. Yeah. Beyond the Canadian ghetto. If I had to, you know, Constantine's, you have touched the hearts of really Americans. Sweeping statement. Um, and that I was very touched by their music and I wish they'd make more. And I feel like that would be, that's what you write in those kinds of letters, right? Yeah. And uh, here's my question for you Why haven't you done it? Um, well, they are broken up for a long time. And no, but I mean, like, right, like, like, why haven't, why haven't you done it already? Why haven't I written a letter? What would keep you, what keeps you from writing a letter? Is it like adult shame? Like, oh, that's corny. Or is it like, oh, I don't have the time. Yeah, I would say like, it would be me rationalizing by saying I don't have the time, but like, I definitely have the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, Jonah, get a word, word in edgewise here. <laughs> Who are you going to write to? I feel like maybe I would write. I feel like maybe I would write to Jeff Tweedy, and I feel like I would be like Jeff. Like I feel like we had this connection for so long, and we. I kind of like this is not a yearbook. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a very one sided connection. He has, I don't know him, but uh, yeah, I just felt like I kind of like 
I feel like Jeff Tweedy is probably someone who does actually kind of get those letters sometimes. I'm sure he yeah. does. But they're probably all emails to like info at wilcomanagement.com. Right, right. I wouldn't want to answer that ban of mail. No. But do you think he actually gets letters or do you think he just gets those kinds of... Given how old his fan base is, probably. Yeah. Or it's like old people trying to figure out what a DM is, you know, being like, Jeff, oh, he's not following me. Uh, I cannot communicate with this person. Does it? Yeah. I have a few friends that were on Alternative Tentacles and they're like, yep, you still cannot get a hold of Jell-O Biafra via email. Like he still will send you letters <laughs> as his correspondence. It's phone calls or letters. I would prefer I a is- phone call. I want to, I would want to hear the letter in his voice. Yeah, yeah. I'm on, I'm on a mission to um, call my friends on the phone more often and have like actual conversations with them or even like FaceTimes or whatever. But my goal is one a week for the whole year. To like uh, impart, like reconnect even with people that I used to talk on the phone with all the time, even like two years ago, where now I just send them texts and be like, haha, cat gif. Like, how long, how long <laughs> is a combo? Do you like, this? um, generally, like some of them are like an hour. Yeah. And those ones are like less, less often because I kind of have to like set aside the time where you're like, we're going to make an appointment to FaceTime now that you are in grad school and far away or like whatever. And just like full on shooting the shit style. Do you do that on the telephone anymore with anyone? I don't have phone conversations with people and it makes me sad, but then I see so much stuff on social media where it's like, oh, calling someone is like the worst thing you could ever do. And I'm like, <laughs> someone left me a voicemail. Like, oh. I don't ever check my voicemails. I'm like, why wouldn't you check your, like how much does it inconvenience you to listen to like 10 seconds of audio on your phone? My voicemail is like 80% my parents, 20% my children's schools. And it's just like, they're like, this is a reminder that school is cl-. like automated stuff. Okay. And the rest are like very detailed, long messages about my parents. Please call me back. I guess if you have kids, you kind of have to. You have to, to pay messages. attention to your yeah. phone. Um, but yeah, talking on the phone. Lost art of talking on the phone. But also, like sometimes when people call, like I totally feel this, and I've seen this on social media. Like, like you see that someone is actually calling you, like on the telephone to pick up, and you're like, ah, oh, I don't want to talk to anybody. Like, what sort of fucked up world is this? <laughs> Look, we're talking. It's cool. Everybody, you can do this in your own home. Yeah, you don't need or a fancy on the studio. Telephone. Yeah. You don't even have to turn it into a podcast. You can talk to one another and you can talk about music. We're making meaningful eye contact. That's <laughs> true. I'm looking at each of them with one of my eyes. It's <laughs> um, really disconcerting. I don't know which way to look. <laughs> what would your letter to Jeff Tweedy said? We just have a connection. No. Do you think he feels a connection to you psychically? Uh, no. I mean, we shared some, we had a dad coke together. I interviewed him about the first Lucifer record when I worked at AP. AP, most anticipated record of the year, they let me write about Lucifer, like his band with Jim O'Rourke. It was a long time ago. God, what a weird world that was. <laughs> but no, just like, I don't know, like what happened to to me. Like I was so into like that kind of stuff and so excited about music and everything. I feel like he kind of like represented that for me. Now I feel like I've gotten like so much more kind of cynical about everything. Like, no, you're like, music used to mean a lot to me. And just today I listened to Don Henley solo material and it was the only thing that sparked a glimmer of emotion. <laughs> Jeff Tweedy, come back into my soul. Yes, it is something like that. I mean, maybe maybe I have like a side gig in like writing these letters, you know? If I was Jeff Tweedy, I wouldn't know how to respond to that. It's like, ah, so I'm like your... Burn pile. It's like, it's either Don Henley or me, huh? <laughs> like, what does that say about what I'm doing? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm in a weird place, guys. I don't know. 
Do you need to talk about it? <laughs> no, I'm okay. okay. This is helping a lot. Have we established who you would write? Yeah. I think we've yeah, established Jessica. that. Mm. And what would you say, and how would you say it I'd to write not write a 12,000-page letter as... to no means no. No, oh, um, that's a good one. Um, gosh, who would I write to? Um, ooh. I don't know, because sometimes when music means a lot to me, I just, now I just write about it. I have, and that's like my way of communicating to that person. And probably that person, like is Dear Slita Kinney. Yeah, have, I, Pitchfork's a pretty decent platform if you want to get to somebody. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Fuck you a might, stamp. Might see it someday. Fuck a stamp. <laughs> Dear Carrie Brownstein. What would you say to Carrie? Uh, probably did. what I already did. Yeah, I wrote a piece about Slater Kinney. Made some people cry. Nice. That was the mail I got about it. Um. But no, but also it's like the people that I sometimes I'm like somebody that I'm like, oh, God, I just want to like know stuff about them. But like I just did a in conversation with um, Annie Clark, St. Vincent at the MCA, and we got to have like some of the conversation I wanted to have with her like on stage. And there was like 300 people there or whatever, you know, but like there's certain people where I just want to I don't ever want to know about anybody's process. I just want to know about everybody's brain, you know. And just how they think and feel and process other music or other art or just people who have interesting opinions about everything. So maybe my my letter would have a lot of questions. I don't know who I necessarily like want to not like tell my feelings to. You know, do you think that there's people that are like our age that like write letters to Ian Mackay that are like your band still means everything to me, bro? Yes, I think so. Yeah, like actual letters. Again, we get going back to that. I don't. I, don't I wonder know. if Discord has an email. I bet they do. <laughs> it's a joke. Sure. It's a joke. I mean, I I feel like in some ways that might be a letter I might even write. You know, we were talking like there was like an interview with Brooks Headley, um, who, what are all the bands that Brooks was in? Wrangler Brutes, Born Against, um, high school band with people from Animal Collective, right? Um, mm-hmm. But he was a drummer in all these bands, and he's like a, a well known uh, chef now. And he did some interviews for his uh, his cookbook that came out recently, which is has like a ton of punk ephemera in it too. So if you care at all about that, but don't care about dessert, you should buy it. <laughs> um, but he was talking about kind of like everything that I know that's like foundational about my cooking I, or like the way I approach what I do, I got from Fugazi Records. And it's like, oh yeah, no, like kind of basically, I know you're like, we have a furrowed brow over to the left here. Oh, I was I was not expecting... Uh, I was you know, I was ready for like vegan potlucks or from no. squat food, you know, like that's where I learned everything, not from. No, record. but like the, how, how a band that gave you an ethics or a moral code or what you're supposed to do or that you're supposed to think about your community and you know what you're bringing to people and how it's different from everything else and what kind of a I don't know worldview you want to imbue into your work. I'm gonna burp. <laughs> but I, there are certain things like that that I still think about, or I think about like listening to um, a, a Smart Went Crazy record and um, that song, uh, Good Day. And, uh, and there's like a mention of Bayard Rustin. And I was like, oh, who's Bayard Rustin? Pre internet. I mean, there maybe that was sort of nascent internet era and like putting into like my, Alta Vista search browser, Bayard Rustin, and be like somebody who then became, you know, really like a, a iconic for me in terms of 
you know, how, what you aim to do if you're trying to put good work in the world. You know, like, what's a band that could imbue, or not, I keep saying imbue over and over, I don't know why. Um, you know, but like a band that could impart, like you could literally learn from, learn a thing from, and not just like, oh, this underlines my feelings, and God, yeah, that was a bad breakup. And this gets to my pain, which I'm not going to say is like less valuable, but right. being someone who grew up on punk and hardcore, you know, and Riot Girl, you know, personal is political and all that. So that's sort of what I value. So maybe I would write like, dear Ian, thanks guys. <laughs> I hear Guy Pichotto lives in a tiny house that's like 20 square feet that it's like the size of McDonald's bathroom stall. Whoa, it's like one of those new minimalist yeah. living. It's like I live in a That's what I heard. I, I literally uh, like that he lives in a teeny, like impossibly teeny tiny house. Which is like, if that's true, he's really living politics. You know? Yeah. yeah like, keep Petrotto still an example. That might be like a total myth. Yeah. And I, and I also don't know if that's, I don't know. There's this whole, you know, new movement towards like how little can you own and like how little space can you occupy. And I, I like that in contrast to like bloat but i also feel like it's it's like well i do have my macbook and my iphone and that's all i really need and it's like well you're still like buying products by like the biggest mega corporation out there and like mm-hmm. why why are we not like if you're a true sh- punk you would carry this message via donkey back well, to yeah, the I'm person not, that you need to deliver it to I'm and do an to, in person i am but you know like what's wrong with having things that are like made by people like like records that are made by people, you know, or like furniture Fuck that's made records. by people. And you know? chairs. <laughs> but, or clothes, you know, but like nice like artisan things that you can pass on that become relics and I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I hit a point like where I was so into collecting records and stuff and then like maybe like five years ago I was just like, I don't want anything. And I don't know if that's just from living here and having no mm-hmm. space and I moved three times in one year, but I'm now I'm just like, whenever like someone gives happening. me something, I'm like, ugh, where am I going to put this? I feel in like that's trash. happening everywhere. I feel like that's just like a, an urban yeah. But I, also, I, I mean, I think living in a city, but also because of the the muchness of contemporary life is really, um, I think it can become overwhelming in part just because of the sheer amount of things by virtue of like doing a job or being out in the world, how much we encounter and I feel like there are fewer opportunities for any sort of rest or respite or even retreat from the world without it being like, you know, some bells and whistles like, I'm going away and I'm leaving my phone here for three days. And it like, you know, in an effort to try to reset your brain. We, I was talking about this with some other people who are sort of like same age as we are that I feel really lucky that we know uh, and experienced a good long while in our lives without smartphones mm-hmm. because people who are millennials or young millennials now who've been on like are used to being on like literally gchat all the live long days since they're eight or nine years old and have screen names that they came up with in middle school you know yeah they don't they, maybe they don't know how to map that retreat even you know how does which that- i think is still i think it's really valuable i think people need to like pull away from technology and stimulation and all these things because how how the fuck else can we really be like creative and not to say that's more pure because obviously people are still like writing books and stuff like that but then you get people like there's uh, Mira Gonzalez and Taolin have a book coming out that's like a collection of their tweets or something where I'm like oh well I guess that's that's how they are creative now 
Uh, not to put that on some sort of hierarchy, like you didn't write Ulysses, so fuck you. But <laughs> well, I think there's starting to be a backlash against that stuff. Like I've talked to two or three people who like have flip phones now, and they're like, "It's way better. I don't need any of this stuff. Like this is all I want." I went back to flip phones for like two years. Yeah, but what I missed was having a. Th- then I had to carry a camera, too, yeah. separately because I have little children. I need to capture their every delightful waking moment. Um, so then I had two, but also then I couldn't, um, it was like a T9 phone. <laughs> like it was like such a fucking pain in the ass to text. It's like, fuck it. I'll go back to an iPhone. I, but I, I, I really don't, um, I feel exhausted by the electronic tether in my life. Yeah. I just have the worst sense of direction ever. GPS, yes. I'm just the, always lost. Yeah. That happened to me. I was at South by Southwest. I was five and a half months pregnant. And I had gotten horrible directions, like on like whatever like um, bad phone I had that was not didn't have a proper iPhone GPS whatever, and it kept telling me to catch the bus I needed to get back to South by Southwest. I'd actually taken a bus like halfway to the fucking airport to go see somebody who wasn't performing. I got there and they're like, "No, that's actually the last band. That's the wrong information that you got." I was like standing in a parking lot by myself, going like, "I literally don't know how to get back from this place because I couldn't get a cab that far out." And it kept telling me to catch a bus in the middle of a cemetery. <laughs> Where I was like, and it was just terrifying. And I just, I walked, you know, whatever. Not heavily pregnant, somewhat pregnant, but still feeling like freaked out and vulnerable. It's like, I'll just keep walking until I see like a bus line. Oof. Okay. It's like 1130 at night. Oof. No one knows where I am in the excerpts of Austin, Texas. So there you go, everybody. Just keep your smartphone. Yeah, yeah. 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 Lest you find yourself in the cemetery pregnant. <laughs> we, we had like two days of that. Missing showcases. <laughs> was, that was the night uh, and when I finally, I kept walking till, or I got on a bus until I saw people that were like clearly at a party or like a showcase or whatever. And I got off and everyone was like, Alex Chilton died. That's where I was. I was uh, on a bus. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> right, somebody else talk. Yeah, I was just saying we had no cable or internet for two days, and it was just like, oh, this is weird. Like, did you read a book? I read some books, did some paintings, listened to records. It didn't really change things. I just didn't watch an hour's worth of TV that night, and that was kind of the only change. I was like, this is nice. Like, I feel like it would screw over a lot of people to all of a sudden be deprived of those things, and that made me feel. Uh, superior to other people. I felt <laughs> I pat myself on the back a lot. I'm talking about it now, obviously, so I felt pretty good about myself. I just wanted to share that with the world. Brian brings this up every time you talk to him. He's <laughs> like, I don't really need technology. That but. two days where I didn't have internet or cable. That's a, You are like the artisanal ice cubes of of the hardcore world. <laughs> you can plug in your base. Uh. But you know, but the other thing too, it's like something like that. Like, let's say you, you do go full Jello Biafra and you're like, stamps only, bro. Write to me, you know, or whatever. I don't know. If, is that was that like a good Jalabiafra impression? Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> but you know, let's say you go off the grid. Do people just stop communicating with you because it's like it's like writing to your grandma or something? You're like, oh fuck, I gotta go get her like a card. And even though you love your grandma or whoever, somebody who is like doesn't have an email address, say, um, you know that you have to jump through hoops to communicate with them so then your communication gets bad because it's not like just totally at your leisure where you're like emoji 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 see you later um making people to jump through hoops to to communicate with you call me on the phone or send me a letter you cannot electronically communicate with me do you think that could be like a totally fugazi thing to do as an adult 
make people, ha- or do you think you would just people just stop talking to you because they're like, "Fuck, this is a hassle." Oh, it depends. If you're talking about in your personal life, like just in, in the world, in the like world, you are like an analog person. Well, I'm just. I think you know if it means like friend interactions, I think most people would be like, "It's a pain in the ass. I'm not going to call." Do you remember going yeah. over to people's houses like that you knew where all your friends lived? Yeah. Maybe that's more of a thing probably maybe here in New York or whatever. Or like mm-hmm. no things I think about sometimes is that I knew what my friend's signatures looked like. I knew what people's handwriting looked like. Kid, do you have any friend that you know what their handwriting looks like anymore? No. Yes. I know my sister's handwriting, <laughs> but that's it. I know how to forge my bandmates' signatures. But, but that's, that's like different. Yeah, you guys have been in a band together. Yeah. But like anybody who's like a current friend that you've made in the last four years would you have any idea if you saw their signature no. they're like oh no even like roommates Jimmy. no way yeah no Not i don't know if they own pens kind of weird i now only know where like a couple of my friends live but do you remember stopping by people's houses because you couldn't get a hold of them yeah totally you guys if you're young this probably sounds super weird to you we're just like old people talking about like do you remember a buggy whip? <laughs> remember what it was like to travel by horseback for three days to go to school? <laughs> Welcome to Grandpa Time with Jessica Hopper. I'm your host, Jessica Hopper. And I'm here with two elderly people in this Converse-sponsored studio. Well, here's an, uh, you know, so you have this book coming out with all your criticism. Is this like the first time a lot of it's actually in print? I wrote it all on stone tablets, and, well, and no, I've been but, keeping it in a cave this whole fucking time. No, but, uh, no. Oh, well, okay. I, you know, I just like <laughs> it's I know. not new. Oh, oh, you mean like is it reprinted? Is no, it like Brian's saying like how much of it has only appeared online. I guess is that what you're um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Some of it is uh, a few items are like pre digital divide, but some of it is sort of crept in there because like maybe I would reprint it on my blog. I've had a blog for like a jajillion. You were the first people I feel like who had a blog at that. And it's still the same. It's still the same blog address, and really? I I updated it like a little while ago. Yeah, maybe I'm like down to like a couple times a year. But that's like another thing I never. But I miss do. it. Like I literally, would like, like check someone's blog like every. They'd read something new every day, and you'd be part of your thing. Oh my god, the blog roll. Cold blooded old times. <laughs> um. What is what are okay. Let's stop being dicks about it. What is a new technology you guys love? What is a convenience that you thrive on? All of it? Not all of it, I don't think. I love pasteurized milk. Okay. And I love being (laughs) able to take pictures with my phone and put it on Instagram. What I hate is that last night I dreamt about Instagram and I dreamt about Instagram comments. Yeah, I I feel like, yeah, you know, like digital photos is something I was resistant to because I'm like, well, then it only exists on a screen. Like, that's not cool. I get prints, dude. But now it's, now, you know, there's this wave of like, oh, oh, that computer died. So I lost all those photos. And oh, that, like, I don't remember my password to Flickr. So I can't like access any of those photos. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's like, it's like I just lost everything in the fire, you know? But then how quick do you get over it? I lost a hard drive. My cat knocked over a hard drive and it was all the music that I had accumulated during like whatever the seven years that I worked on This American Life. I, I would like... I, I had to have like such whatever like robust archives, but like I went to the library every single week and would check out like the maximum number of CDs and it was like all different kinds of music and was like oh, so dutiful about burning. And then it was like my cat knocked it over and I just lost it all. And then after that, I kind of don't, literally don't give a shit about anything ever. <laughs> like just accept that any digital archive, anything that I cataloged, videos of my grandma that were like on my 
you know, clamshell MacBook or whatever from 10 years ago. Just gone. Yeah. Just rely on memory the old-fashioned way. Yeah. I feel like I have a lot of stuff and I never look at it. Yeah. I never... They say that it affects your memory now, too. And like, that it's like the more pictures you take, the less you actually remember that happens in your life. Because really? you come to rely yeah. on that. It's like re- smart smartphones are rewiring our brain. I'm so sorry. This is probably like literally the most boring thing in the entire universe to listen to. This, this, t- except for if we had still been talking about Bruce Hornsby. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Bruce Hornsby play. Yes, yeah, so by about accident. That. Um, I who did I? Oh, this is. I went to go see what was it? Um, Gina Gershon briefly had a band that was members of Girls Against Boys. Jessica's thinking so hard right now. Her eyes, eyes are, are shut. It was at the ba- in the basement of House of Blues. And it was a truly funny show because, like, whatever the the VIP for the Gina Gershon like um, Girls Against Boys overlap was me, Billy Corgan, Sally Timms from the Mekons, Chris Thompson from of Circus Lupus Mon Orchid fame, okay, and two Russian like tycoon like people visiting from Moscow were very very rich, and they were like. Yes, we love Gina Gershon, or like whatever. And we were all seated at like this big table together. And I was like, this is, I can't deal with Billy Corgan being a dick to all these people coming up to talk to him. And he was just talking about how he just got his teeth drilled and he didn't use aspirin because he meditated. And I was like, oh, <laughs> beautiful. Ugh. And so I was like, fuck this. I can't deal with this. And I went upstairs and watched Bruce Hornsby. Yeah. How was it? <laughs> um. <laughs> I saw him do, uh, what is it? Is it, that's just the way it is? What was like what the... Is, what is a mandolin rain are kind of his two big jams. I saw him do one of them. I was like, this song is not bad, but his shirt is like an atrocity. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. It was like some like Cabela's pleat fronts or something. I was like, no, dude, don't go there. Um, Have some dignity. This, I thought we were just going to talk about like gender identity or something this whole time. So this is actually, this is great. I feel like I can actually. I, I feel like, I feel like my, well, my feminist punk soul is still deeply intact. And we could have sat here and talked about like the ways that bell hooks, you know, men, masculinity and love or whatever has changed my life. Um, I feel like as I get older, my taste gets more like middle aged man and like. Uh, that's like a really I'm going through this phase where I was like there's like no corny 70s music that is like too corny for me <laughs> I'm like ah oh, the crafts the craftsmanship of this Helen Reddy record I mean like just like ugh. where well, I'm how, like I know this is so bad but it's so good how do you sort of reconcile that with sort of being working for a set like Pitchfork that's so kind of on the pulse of new <laughs> news i terrorize everyone by their like why are we listening to steely dan and i was like because i'm fucking tired of listening to panda bear so loud every day um i don't know i think it's i think uh i listen to music slowly and also once i had my kids um and i worked at home and they would be i could only really work when they were napping or when they were very little they would like fall asleep in my in the little like um baby ergo harness thingy that i wore and um so i would have to write about music um, and either just listen to it on headphones or just totally silently because I had to be able to hear them if they woke up. And so I'm really used to working in total silence. And so listening to music is actually really disruptive to my creative process now, which is so fucked. Um, but like uh, when I, uh, the only music I can listen to and write at the same time is music that I already know. 
because otherwise my curiosity is like being peaked and it pulls me away from what I'm writing. And so, um, I don't know. So yeah, I still listen to tons of Steely Dan. Deeply uncool. Best new everything, Steely Dan. <laughs> I feel like Steely Dan's having a resurgence though. I think people are... Coachella, still... bro. Are they playing Coachella? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Our dad's favorite bands are playing Coachella. <laughs> And, but I've seen like they've had some like hip revival. I think all those. Yeah, like- they had. Um, they uh, there's a if you you know how there's kind of those like really middling. Um, maybe like they're from like the early aughts, late nineties. Bunch of music documentaries that are all in a series on Netflix. A lot of classic rock bands. But if you watch the Steely Dan one, and you know they're in the studio and doing like that thing where they like pull down and isolate certain tracks, and they're what is it? Is it Black Cow? And they then cut to like, they're like, and it was sampled by um, Lord Tariq. And then, and then Dan, uh, Donald Fagan's like, yeah, that song. And then like he, then he like sort of for like a millisecond raps the Lord Tariq song that it samples. And it was like, um, it was very meta. But um, where am I going? I like Steely Dan. <laughs> that story has no end. I watched a Netflix documentary, you guys, but if you care, it, it's very... It, um, someone else talk. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about the virtues of Chicago. I, I love Chicago, the band. Especially... I, Whoa! Yeah. Yeah. Dude, you're like deep for Satara. I, you I stand love for Satara. Yeah. It's so weird you say that. Like three nights ago, I couldn't sleep and I went into like a YouTube hole and watched the video for uh, Look Away. Yeah. Just Who explosions. the fuck are you people? Like <laughs> Chicago is a bridge I can't cross though. Um Chicago what's, is like, what's what's the what's um the like that super tight horn arrangement that's at the beginning of what is it, six to nine? Twenty five or six to four. Or what whatever. <laughs> Sweet sixty nine by six to four. But like that that super tight horn arrangement has always made me think, do I need to listen to a Chicago record? And then I like pull back because I have some dignity. <laughs> I feel like, you know, <laughs> Peter, anyone who likes United After Nations this, or Russian like, circles is going to be so Peter Cetera, Chicago, Peter Cetera era, Chicago, like when he was fronting and singing, writing all those ballads is like totally his the precursor phrasing, to emo. emo. No, his phrasing it like, okay, people are going to be like, what is wrong with this lady? His phrasing <laughs> and also, um, oh my God, I can't remember his name, saying in the who. Oh, Roger Daltrey. Uh, like literally two of my least favorite singers because of their phrasing. <laughs> really? And, yes. Peter Cetera? I do. I cannot. Well, also, but Roger Daltrey, like I literally, I was like, I like these bass lines on the Who. I like the drumming. Like literally can't get past the Who past that point. So, mm. Isn't that fucked up? Because it's like, <laughs> to me, it's like such a bland rock and roll and maybe because it's like so, you know, over emulated or whatever. But like, same thing with Velvet Underground. I'm like, heard it. Sonic Youth is better, dude. <laughs> or like whatever. My shitty my shitty attitude. Um I can't go I can't I can't go there with you on Satara, no, dude. That's fine. I, I just feel you know, it's like every song is about how his girlfriend left him and he just hopes that she's happy. So you're and, basically saying it's like the curse of, of the seventies? No, I feel like it's the precursor to emo. Like every song is like the poor down. People really thought it was Rights of Spring, but it was actually Chicago. Wow, this is a really important yeah. conversation. <laughs> yeah, deeply. We're re we're reframing the nineties entirely. Do you imagine right now that there's like somebody maybe who like maybe they used to read my column in Punk Planet and they they saw your band playing like the basement of their group house um, that didn't have 
toilet paper because it wasn't like punk or whatever. Or like read your stuff back in the day and was like, oh yeah, I'll buy these records that Jonah recommends. And like we're literally sitting here talking about Peter Cetera and they're like, that person is like punching a hole in the drywall <laughs> of their bedroom. Being like, what has become of these people? Chicago was the first album I ever bought. Oh God! Chicago seventeen. Just drop it. I was Just drop it. <laughs> it. Hasn't lost its luster. It's still important to me. Chicago. For a 17. second, I got excited because I thought we were talking about Chicago, the city where I live. <laughs> but we're going to talk about like literally one of the worst fans of the seventies. <laughs> Are we going to talk about how much how much we love sticks next? I'm not. I can hang with some sticks. Did you say you can? I can. How okay. How depraved are you when it comes to 70s rock and like 80s, like really tepid 80s rock? What is like literally the worst thing where you're like, I can't believe I love this? I've, oof, man, I loved it. <laughs> Eviscerate lot. yourself. I really love. Show us how fucked up you are. This uh, is a competition. This is all before, you know, the college rock we were talking about earlier with, you know. No, like as an adult. Oh, that I still like? Hmm. Chicago's pretty bad. Chicago's pretty bad. I still like actively listen to Chicago at least once on every tour when I just get tired of like loud guitar or like you're like retreating to your iPod like, with like Tower of Power. I just need something that sonically about Tower of Power sounds totally too. different. Oh, Survivors, Vital Signs. That's, that's a pretty good. That's not terrible. Yeah, I. I mean, a lot I think of uh, people are nice of you to say that. <laughs> generous. What is like literally the worst music you listen to? Not counting about, not counting like any like NSBM that anyone listens to in secret. Um, I listen to like like weird Genesis songs. Is that is that bad? Like what know. era? Can you Genesis? tell by the face I'm making? Like, like the total like who farted? Are you talking about Peter Gabriel era Genesis? No, I'm talking okay. about like much less cool era, okay. like like we can't dance era Genesis, oh, wow. <laughs> or like Mike and the Mechanics. Oh, I knew it! <laughs> I knew it! But you've always liked Mike and the Mechanics. We had to sing the Living Years at my seventh grade Montessori oh. school graduation, which is like <laughs> really? if you look at the lyrics, it's a depressing like, song. Yeah, it's not about his dad. Dying. And it's just like yeah. it's like literally like I think our music teacher is like, oh god, I really identify with this song because she's probably like in her fifties or whatever, being like, yeah, every generation, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, wow. Isn't, isn't Mike like, the Mechanics Chicago? <laughs> what and you guys like on this podcast? You normally are like talking a lot about like throwback hardcore and shit right yeah i mean I, we're talking about the throwback throwback we're, we're talking about 70s am radio yeah with no shame we it's never gone this deep on the podcast for sure new lows yeah i like it i mean <laughs> we it. might say like new depths but yeah. truly it's like we're getting to a place of pure 70s pathos yeah we're digging deep um, um the thing i would say that i am probably that like i put on and was like mm, i appreciate this is like kind of like lesser pre eighties Jackson Brown. Okay, I see that. That's pretty. That's pretty chill. Yeah, I always feel like I'm like God. This is so weird. I'm listening to like this is like who is this? Like Don Henley and Jackson Brown high in a hotel room in like 1976, and it's a live track. <laughs> that sounds. I really check good. myself, and then I also think like, how is this? Uh, every time I'm like, oh, this is kind of like where where I'm kind of feeling it out, like you know, in my. <laughs> my dignity barometer but then i go how is this any different than like a hold steady song maybe in some ways yeah absolutely that's not a diss craig <laughs> at all it's a compliment 
I got really into um, ZZ Top and then I pulled back from that. Okay. But I went into ZZ Top because I read some old Sonic Youth thing where, um, like, maybe it was around, like, the, the goo reissues where they're like, oh, all we listened to was ZZ Top. And then I did, like, I A-B'd it and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. I could, I could, I could it's like that. a total, the, rhythmically, it is absolutely really? a ZZ Top record, yeah. Maybe that's why, I, like, Cool Thing always, like, grinded my gears just because of that main guitar riff. I hate it when people, like, sing along with a guitar riff. That drives me absolutely up the wall. Really? Like, the guy in the instrumental band? But, like, what about, like, like, Mars Volta when Mars Volta has done it? Do they sing along with the riff? I, I feel like I'm thinking, like, of. Iron Man, like, I am, I am, or, like, Outshine, it's or, like, so show me the power, <laughs> and, like, uh, and Cool Thing is totally that, where it's like, you know, it's like, I hate it's that. It's also, like, Cool Thing is, like, the worst song on that record. Yeah. Scooter and Jinx, best song. But also, I saw Nels Klein once totally destroy Scooter and Jinx in a live setting, like, like perfectly. Okay, <laughs> full aside. <laughs> but I can hear some. Uh, I can hear some ZZ Top and Cool Thing. I think a little bit in that that main guitar riff. The whole thing. It's like that chucka 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 chucka. That's my imitation of a guitar. And thank you for joining us today on this fully. What is what is your podcast called? Going off track. I knew that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for this ha- is sound opinions, right? <laughs> uh, thanks for having me and Brian on your podcast, Jessica. It's been a pleasure. NBD. <laughs> um, my flight got canceled. So I could, like we could just have this be like a marathon. Yeah, D- tape all fucking day. You guys don't have shit to do, right? Nothing. <laughs> this is like your job. We, right? The singer for the Spin Doctors is coming at one. Are you fucking kidding? No. <laughs> And I've been actually been sort of listening to them lately because he's coming on. Where I'm like, I should be familiar. How would you describe the look on my face right now? <laughs> like, like disbelief, like confused, oh, sympathy, sad, a, a little judgment, but like more like pity. Yeah, like a little who farted. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's it. And when does your book come out? My book. Yes, the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic comes out May twelfth. May 12th. And my U.S. book tour starts May 11th at Word Books in Brooklyn. Really? Nice. And it runs through the 20th. So you'll be back soon. Yeah. Cool. I just live here. I just might move in. You should. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Can I use that moving blanket? Sitting here. (laughs) Just wrap myself in it. Absolutely. Like a burka around here. People are like, what is that ghost? That's Jessica. She never left. Wow. What did you guys think of that podcast? That <laughs> was good. I learned a lot about Pitchfork. Yeah, what specifically did you learn? Uh, <laughs> I, Benny? <laughs> All right, I'm fucking with you guys. Neither well, of you were here for this I one. I find it interesting. <laughs> you know what? You could give me the chance to bullshit my way through this. I okay. think I could have. Now I'm, I can't anymore. Now it's, sorry, now it's over. It. The veil's been lifted. We I'm could sorry. still bullshit. That's but the great I, thing about bullshit. I think I think I... Could have, I think I think I could have semanticed that. You see how many words I've made up today, by the way? I like it. I'm like so Jesse Jackson today. <laughs> semanticked. Um. But Jonah, tell me what you learned about the uh, the interview and things about Pitchfork and Bruce Hornsby. <laughs> I learned that I'm just, my taste in music is getting weirder and weirder as I get older. And I'm getting more and more out of touch with almost everything. Yeah. But I'm cool with it. I don't really care. I like what I like. It's just kind of how the, the wave goes, isn't it? Yeah. You got to ride the crest. You got to be true to yourself. That's what I learned. <laughs> Did um, you see my against me reference? Oh, yeah. 
run the crest of a new wave. Yeah, I thought you were going to be on that. I was, uh... Do you a little out of it today? I'm going to feel a little out of it today. I almost Merv Griffined it. <laughs> I came close. I had a really good joke on, uh, on Twitter today. I don't know Tell, if you saw it. No, can you say it? Yeah. Can you oh, give us a recap? Yeah, yeah, let me give you a recap. Uh, I've gotten a lot of good feedback on it. Breaking news. Where's the vibra slap? <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you hear about the orange who, lo- did you hear about the orange who loved Orchid? No. He started a rindcore band. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I like it. It's a it's a grindcore screamo joke. No idea. What you're John, I'm about. telling you, when all else <laughs> fails, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be a, a one liner comedian, and I'm going to be your chubby, hairy Jewish manager. <laughs> and God, I hope so. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you in the Catskills circuit, Poconos. <laughs> Um, maybe, maybe Reno. We're gonna I'm gonna, need, I'm gonna have a very niche audience. Yeah. No, I'm thinking. Bring I'm th- back that Catskills circuit. Yeah, I'm thinking casinos <laughs> and like the 50 to 70 demo is where we're gonna go with this. Um, but you might have to uh, start wearing something a little more put together. Like you might have to start wearing like a little suit or a little tux. Yeah, tux. I don't know. Tux T-shirt. What about like an old school one, like a velvet tux? Baby. Yeah. With a big roughly tuxedo shirt? Oh, come mm. on. Mm. Holy mm. shit. Oh, I'm just Nailed imagining it. putting butterscotch sauce all over you after that. <laughs> all right. Now that sold me. <laughs> um, but yeah, check out Jessica's book. Um, I feel like we've talked about it a lot, but. That's why we did the podcast. So um, the first collection of criticism by female rock critic, it's out now, just came out. Um, thanks to Brian Cook for guest hosting that episode. Super intelligent guy as always. And thanks to Benny and Brad for doing this outro with me and Viber slapping it up. <laughs> One um, love. Visit us online at Going Off Track, Twitter Going Off Track. Um, you can donate. You can donate a dollar on our website. It's super easy and that covers some of our server costs. Um, so we can have all these hundreds of podcasts available for you for free. free. You know what I wanted to say? That line from Coming to America. We prefer the money. Wait, we like the money that jingles, but we prefer the money that folds. <laughs> yep. Very good. Yeah. Um, that boy good. <laughs> <laughs> just going to bring Benny in for the intros. From I know. Uh, Benny, Benny, yeah, you're just going to have to come in here every week now, dude. I I would love to. Beautiful. You guys know how much fun I have. Mm-hmm. I love just talking shit. <laughs> talking shit's just fun. It is. You know? It's nothing true. better than talking shit and getting paid for it, huh, boys? Yeah, the big bucks. <laughs> yes. If you want the big bucks, do a free podcast. That's where the money's at. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to Jessica and Brian for doing this podcast. And we will see you all, or you will hear us all next week. Yeah.